Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts, and if you're tuning in the day this is released, happy Halloween. This is episode 133, part two of the Bell Gunness story. I want to thank supporters Julia and Grace for their donations. I appreciate you all. And special thank you to Billy and his son and their family. They sent a donation, but they also put my stickers on their dirt bikes and are having decals made, which is about the coolest method of advertising I can think of. So thanks again, guys. You all are the best. Now, quick recap. A woman from Norway named Belle Gunnis moved to Chicago in the 1880s, right around the time infamous serial killer H.H. Holmes was erecting his murder castle in preparation for the World's Fair. But Belle's plans were much simpler. She had arrived in Chicago, found a husband, started a family, and opened a store. Unfortunately, her home and store burned mysteriously. They collected the insurance money and moved to Texas. Belle's husband and children died while they were in Texas and their house burned down again. Bad luck? We know better now. Belle took her remaining children to LaPorte, Indiana next, where she remarried and had another child. Unfortunately, her new husband's child from a previous marriage died suddenly, right after they got married. And eight months later, the husband died too. Belle spent years fixing up her farm while looking for husband number three, and several men came calling over the years, but they all seemed to vanish after a while. Maybe she couldn't find a compatible suitor, one who could keep up with her financially. Eventually, the brother of one of these suitors got curious when his brother left for Laporte and stopped communicating with his family back home. As the brother, Asla Helgeline, made his way to Laporte to find out what happened to his brother, Andrew, the Gunnis farmhouse just outside of town burned to the ground with four bodies inside, three believed to be Belle's children, one initially thought to be Belle. But as you learned in the last episode, it became a lot more complicated when they realized the adult body was headless and quite a bit smaller than that of Belle Gunnis. Let's get into part two. A little over a week after the fire, news outlets just couldn't seem to keep up with how many bodies and parts of bodies had been found on the farm. Some were reporting the count was up to 18 separate bodies identified. Pinkerton detectives found a trunk full of letters between Ray and Bell that appeared to discuss conspiracies to lure people to the farm to kill them for their belongings. Police also learned that Bell herself bought two gallons of kerosene in the days leading up to the fire. Laporte City Council decided to offer a $5,000 reward for her capture, and people from cities all over the country were reporting sightings of the infamous murderess. By the middle of May, Ray Lamphere had made a partial confession to a reverend, but no one knew what he said, and the reverend wasn't going to share. He still hadn't confessed a thing to police. And all the while, they're getting calls from more family members, like those of Charles Eggman, a man from New Carlisle, who pulled $3,000 from his checking account, went to Laporte, and was never seen again. By now, police had zoned in on a few specific people they believed to have assisted Belle in her crimes over the years, aside from Ray, so they were actively looking for some other individuals. 
Men were writing in about incidents that were all fairly similar and went something like this. The man would be walking through their small town and another man would approach them, ask them some personal questions, and tell them about a wealthy widow looking for a husband in LaPorte, Indiana to help run her farm. There were several stories like this, which meant there were men Bell had hired to literally go out into neighboring towns and recruit wealthy men to come to her farm. While this is not pertinent to the case, really, I had to include this next bit. There was a Cincinnati doctor who studied a photograph of Bell and released his findings to the press. He said that based on her physical features, she was, quote, doomed from birth to degenerate acts. If a person's body is irregular or unsymmetrical, the chances are the brain will be formed badly. Mrs. Gunnis had a peculiarly shaped head, a very large frame, and small feet, and her eyes were irregular. These malformations would indicate a similar malformation of mind. I'm just always fascinated by these little bits and pieces of how bad medicine was back then and how quacky doctors were. Anyway, on May 15th, there was sort of a break in the, in the case. They brought in a dentist who had done some dental work for Bell in recent years, and he was shown a jawbone. Investigators said it was found near the charred bodies in the farmhouse that night, and he said it looked very much like the dental work he had done for Bell. So now the theories started to change again. Maybe Bell did die on the farm that night. However, the question remained, why was the body headless? And how did the jawbone end up in the house near the bodies? Where was the rest of the head? It seemed almost planted and like something very fishy was going on. The fact that it took so long for this jawbone to manifest would be a point of contention in the coming trial. There were many who believed wholeheartedly that jawbone was planted. Regardless, the dentist, Dr. Norton, explained that her dental work was somewhat unique, so he remembered it. She'd had several teeth removed in the back of the mouth, and he could tell where cavities had been and where he had filled with cement. While the investigators are chewing on this jawbone revelation, Ray Lamphere's attorney was telling the press his client was in bad shape, on the verge of collapse, because he's innocent and just so torn up about this whole thing. But listen, the police are closing in on the real accomplices, and soon the world will see that my client is just a lovesick victim in all of this. They hired some miners to sift through the debris at the scene of the fire. They found three rings, believed to have been worn by Bell, as well as skull fragments, which appeared to have a bit of hair still attached that matched the color of Bell's hair. And a few days later, they found some gold teeth the dentist believed were also Bell's. On May 18th, Ray Lamphere went before a grand jury. There were over 40 witnesses and extra bailiffs had to be sworn in to maintain order in the courtroom and out around the courthouse. The coroner went so far as to say that he believed after two weeks of investigation and input from the dentist and other experts that the body he had in his morgue was that of Belle Gunnis, and that clearly she and her children were murdered. 
State Attorney Smith asked for Ray to be indicted on six counts, four for the murders of Belle and her kids, plus accessory in the Helgeline case and an arson charge. The grand jury, quote, returned six true bills against Ray Lamphere, and they also decided to indict Belle for the murder of Andrew Helgeline, but they did not issue a warrant for her arrest since she was declared dead by their coroner. So a very weird and unique situation here, but the way the papers explained it is that they had to indict Bell in order to be able to indict Ray as an accessory. He was not given bail and would remain in jail until his trial started, which they hoped would be sometime in June. Spoiler alert, that did not happen. His attorney considered asking for a change of venue and decided against it. Basically, at that point, it was clear that this was a national story and there weren't many people in the entire country who didn't know the name Bell Gunness or the name Ray Lamphere, for that matter. The day the grand jury made their decision on Ray's case, another female skull was found on the Gunness farm. Weeks after the fire, they were still trying to put together pieces of all the atrocities that occurred on that property. In late May, a man wrote to Laporte authorities to explain that his brother, Henry Gerholt, had definitely been recruited by an accomplice of Bell's. This man came to Iola, Wisconsin, befriended Henry, and urged him to go to Laporte and meet his sister, Bell, who he thought would be a great match for him. So here was another instance of Bell having a recruiter, basically. It wasn't Ray, it was someone else. And apparently that was a common MO for this man to go to various towns and tell these men he had a beautiful, wealthy, single sister. At the end of May, the city of Laporte held an auction to sell some of Bell's personal property. Between four and 5,000 people were in attendance. And this turned into sort of like what a serial killer memorabilia website would be today. There were a lot of people there hoping to get their hands on some gruesome souvenir. It was such an ordeal. Vendors set up food stands and people sold Belle Gunness postcards. Uh, they sold her horse and her dog. The dog was a shepherd, which brought $107, which would be over $3,000 today. By the first week of June, there was a political rift in the town of Laporte. City Council had raised money for the reward for Bell's capture, but some of the money had been appropriated to continue this complex investigation. And some council members were arguing the investigation needed to stop, since the coroner was now claiming Bell was dead, while others argued it had to continue. So there was actually a pause in the investigation until they could get their finances in order. Things were being further complicated by countless bell sightings across the country, as well as people accusing one another of being the accomplice, and even some individuals claiming to be the accomplice, then later retracting their confessions. These appeared to be mostly desperate men looking for a little notoriety. By the middle of June, with city council's position on the matter up in the air, Laporte residents took it upon themselves to sign $50 notes and raise a $5,000 reward on their own for the capture of Belle Gunness. You see, the locals were not at all convinced it was her teeth, jaw, or skull fragments investigators found in the debris. 
So like I mentioned, Ray's trial certainly didn't start in June, not even close. But Ray's attorneys were working on a writ of habeas corpus to get him released based on new findings from the coroner saying there were amounts of strychnine, arsenic, and morphine in the stomach contents of the body believed to be Bell's recovered in the fire. The attorneys were posturing that this meant Bell killed herself and wasn't murdered by Ray. It was an interesting new theory. The prosecutors argued against this, and they considered exhuming the bodies, which had been buried in Chicago, for further examination. The issue was the stomach contents of all the bodies recovered in the fire were apparently mixed together, and so this just made things even more complicated. In addition to the regular bill at the Air Dome tonight, there is offered a special attraction for one night only, a film of moving pictures of the scenes and incidents connected with the findings of the bodies of the murdered victims of Belle Gunnis. The Gunnis farm with all of its gruesome surroundings, the sheriff and others opening the graves of the victims of this monstrous murderess will be shown as natural as life in pictures taken on the farm as the scenes were enacted. In late August, Ray's attorneys, Darrow and Warden, submitted a letter into evidence believed to be written by Bell after the fire from Louisville, Kentucky, and a writing expert declared the signature was very authentic and appeared to truly have been written by Bell herself. Also in late August, Coroner Mack lost re-election. He had lost public support after declaring the body was Bell Gunnis, when most members of the public still believed Bell was on the run. By mid-September, they finally started jury selection, but they anticipated it would take quite a while, so they postponed the trial until after the November elections. The prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, and they needed jurors who were not opposed to it. They also needed jurors who believed Bell was dead, and that would be difficult to find in Laporte. A detective named C.L. Fish arrived in town to testify for the defense. Fish was a private detective, and he swore he had undisputable evidence Bell was alive. I think one of Ray's attorneys either quit or was fired about this time, so attorney Warden would represent Ray by himself, and prosecutor Smith would be joined by his partner, M.R. Sutherland. Now, this case is unique, I mean, in a lot of ways, but one, because usually between the crime and the trial, the papers will lose interest or they run out of things to report, right? But that is certainly not what happened in this case. From April 28th to early November, there was nothing but an increase in anticipation and excitement for Ray's trial. There were so many unanswered questions. Obviously, is Belle alive? Did she murder all those people alone? How involved was Ray? Who else helped her? Did he really behead the woman he loved, kill her children, and set their house on fire, all because he was jealous? During jury selection, witnesses said Ray looked pale and haggard. None of his relatives were there to support him. He was alone. At one point, he had a nosebleed so severe they had to pause everything and take him out of the room. Finally, Ray's trial began after 12 men were selected for the jury on November 11, 1908. 
the defense subpoenaed Mrs. Gunnis to be a witness. In his opening statement, the prosecutor explained to the jurors that not only did Ray murder the Gunnis family, he was a willing accomplice in Bell's murders, the ones she committed, including Andrew Helgeline's. He believed they had proof Ray helped dispose of the body. He said Bell and Ray had a falling out over money. And after she kicked him out, he just kept showing up. The night of the fire, he stayed at Mrs. Smith's house, leaving at 3 a.m. Instead of taking a direct route back to the farm where he worked, he took the road by the Gunnis farm. He also explained the vast amount of evidence they had proving Bell Gunnis died in that fire. He concluded his opening statement with this, quote, I think you'll agree after the evidence is in that the old woman got what was coming to her and isn't running hard today. They showed the jury the physical evidence, including the three gold rings, a piece of cloth found clenched in one of the children's hands, three pieces of bone fragment, the teeth, the jawbone, crime scene photographs. Dr. Long, who helped conduct the autopsies, revealed there were holes in the skulls of two of the children. He also explained the children's fists were clenched, which he revealed was consistent with strychnine poisoning. This next part is especially graphic, so fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want the details. He confirmed that yes, the head of the adult female was missing. Also the upper vertebrae down to the seventh cervical was missing. The left arm was burned to the upper third. The right arm was disconnected at the shoulder. The left leg was burned off at the ankle and most of the flesh on the knees was burned away. An adult right arm was found near the body with a band on one finger and a small diamond ring on the other hand with the inscription PS to JS, August 27th, 94. Dr. Long explained that when reports came out that this body was much smaller than Bell's, it wasn't explained that it was because it was missing all those extremities. He said that in life, that body would have probably weighed around 200 pounds, but all the limbs were missing. Prosecutors called Asla Helgeline as a witness and provided letters in which Bell was clearly trying to place the blame on Ray, using his name, and making it look like he was a suspicious character. Bell urged Osla in those letters to come look for his brother in Laporte and to be sure to bring plenty of money. In the letters, Bell explained to Mr. Helgeline that Ray was insane, but not crazy enough to be put in a hospital. She wrote about Ray being arrested, even though she was the one making the allegations against him, and he was let go every time. A cousin of Ray's testified that Ray came to his house around 6 a.m. the morning of the fire to borrow a broad axe. He said he had seen the Gunnis house burning on his way. Ray's employer testified that he got to his farm around 6.30 that morning. He told his boss that he had seen the fire and didn't know if anyone made it out or not. A grocery clerk testified that the day before the fire, Bell Gunnis had been in store to purchase two gallons of kerosene, which he said was unusual. Ray appeared around the same time, but the grocer didn't see them interact. He said Mrs. Gunnis left the store for a minute after Ray, and when she came back, 
there were tears in her eyes. The defense would argue that Belle knew that was because she was caught and she was so distraught over her plan to kill her children and commit suicide to avoid capture and avoid facing the consequences. Other witnesses testified they had seen Ray wearing clothing and accessories around town that were now known to be the belongings of dead men. Not a great look. On November 21st, the state rested. Everyone was eager to know if Ray was going to testify. Attorney Warden made his opening statement for the defense, alleging, of course, that Belle Gunnis was still alive. Mrs. Gunnis had just been spotted by a neighbor in July. The dental work the dentist claimed was Bell's could not have survived the fire well enough to be identifiable. And what about the fact that they were poisoned? The defense brought in their own expert to contradict the first dentist's findings. He said that if the crown they were showing in evidence was meant to fit the tooth on the jawbone in evidence, it was an awful misfit. Then neighbors testified they saw the fire starting around 3.15 a.m., which was earlier than previously stated, and if Ray left Mrs. Smith's house right at 3 a.m., he probably couldn't have gotten there fast enough to start the fire. A former farmhand of Bell's named Fred testified for the defense that he'd had his glass of wine drugged by Bell and that he knew of another hole on the property that hadn't been explored where more bodies might be, and he knew this because she paid him to dig it. As you can imagine, that was a big day in the courtroom. The headlines for the day read, quote, Bell Gunnis, alive and well. More sightings all throughout the trial, just adding to the excitement. As this trial drug on, it continued to be well attended. There were hundreds in the courtroom every day, mostly women. The deputy sheriff testified that the day he was arrested, Ray made a partial confession. This had been a major point of contention because in every subsequent interview, Ray maintained his innocence. On November 26th, Thanksgiving Day, the trial was wrapped up and jurors were escorted to the Garden Hotel where they were served turkey salad while they discussed the verdict. By 10.45 that night, they had not made a decision so they retired for the evening. The next morning, it was announced the jury had found Ray Lamphere guilty of arson. For this, he was sentenced two to 21 years. Very strange, guilty of arson, and that was it. He was acquitted on everything else. It wasn't enough though. Attorney Warden released an immediate statement that he would appeal all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. The jurors later revealed that aside from everything else, they were convinced the body in the house was Belganis. They just didn't think there was enough to prove Ray killed her. On December 1st, Ray was denied a new trial. In the final days of 1908, police were still receiving tons of letters from people across the region and country claiming they saw Bell, they knew her, they were with her, and they would lead them to her as soon as they got the reward money. It was a nightmare, and there was no end in sight. The trial was over, but no one was moving on from this story. On December 25th, Christmas Day, someone wrote into a small-town Indiana paper, quote, The finding of Mrs. Bell Gunnis should be postponed until after the holidays. 
it doesn't seem right to spoil a happy season by locating a dead woman in three or four different places at a time. In February of 1909, the South Bend Tribune announced a bill would be introduced in the legislature to permit county commissioners to offer rewards of $10,000 for the apprehension of murderers. They wanted to start with $10,000 for the capture of Bell Gunness. Around the same time, victims' families started filing lawsuits in Laporte to recover the amounts their loved ones had taken to the farm before they disappeared. There was also an ongoing battle with the managers of her estate and the insurance company, who claimed that since she might still be alive, they weren't going to pay up. And with her history of insurance fraud exposed, who can blame them? In April of 1909, the Evansville Press reported that Ray was dying of consumption in prison. His friends were begging for him to be paroled so he could spend his last days at home in Laporte. Also in April of 09, a doctor in St. Louis saw a woman yawn with a mouth full of gold teeth and swore it was Belle Gunness. A New Jersey man knew where Belle was because he'd found a message in a bottle floating down a river which listed her whereabouts. In May, a drowned woman found in a lagoon in Lincoln Park was thought to be Belle. In late May, an American sailor in Norway confessed to the murders of Belle and her children. The very next day, it was reported he made the confession to get discharged from duty. A short time later, he was declared insane. Andrew Helgeline's family was awarded over $3,000 from the estate of Belle Gunness in July of 1909. That's the amount believed to have been stolen from Andrew before he was murdered, plus interest. In October, Belle was spotted in Michigan. In December, she was on a farm in Jasper. On December 30th, 1909, after spending a little over a year in prison, Ray Lamphere died. He was 38 years old. This was a really big deal because everyone was hoping that since Ray knew he was dying, he would come clean, but he didn't. And so everyone turned to this reverend. Remember, when he was first arrested, he made some sort of partial confession, or so people thought, to this reverend, uh, Reverend Shell. So when he died, everybody looked at Shell and said, all right, he's dead. Now you can tell us what he told you. And so Reverend Shell consulted some of his colleagues, and he said, nope, can't do it. I can't tell you. So whatever secrets Ray had, they really did die with him. In January of 1910, a judge ordered Bell's farm be sold to settle her estate. The farm was just under 60 acres and valued at around $5,000. Her personal estate was believed to be valued at around 3,500, making a total of what would today be around $260,000. Just when the public thought they might never get answers, there was a buzz in the news. Maybe they would get Mr. Ray's confession after all. This gets very complicated, and instead of trying to go through all of it in detail, I'm going to read you a summary of what happened here. Quote, Edward Beckley, a journalist, was given a secret assignment to acquire access to a confession and publish it, thus bringing a second, inconsistent, Lamphere account to light. The second account is based on the report that Lamphere contacted Reverend Edwin Schell and provided him with a verbal confession Schell transcribed 
and had Lamphere sign, a document that Shell kept sealed in his personal safe. Beckley attempted to convince Shell to publish this later confession, but was denied by both Shell and Shell's wife. However, a separate newspaper published a story with speculation regarding the second Lamphere confession. Described as worried as to the peace of the families of the victims, Shell offered the confession to Beckley, which was later published. So the long and the short of it to me is that a, a newspaper a journalist kind of created a fake confession and the reverend was worried that the victim's families were going to take that one to heart. And so he was like, here, just have the real thing. I mean, that's what I understand happened here. So in this confession that the reverend provides, Ray admitted he killed the Gunnis family with an axe sprinkled everything in the house with kerosene and set fire to it. He also admitted to taking part in the prior murders, and he said he was the one who would typically bury the bodies. He confirmed that Belle was the adult female body burned in the fire. This confession also implicated the woman he stayed with the night before the fire, Elizabeth Smith. He said she helped chloroform the Gunnis family before they were murdered. Smith was promptly arrested then released on bond. We'll get back to her in a bit. In March of 1910, Bell was spotted in Grand Rapids, Michigan, then Idaho in June, and by October of 1911, she was in Dorset, Ohio. In December 1912, a man who claimed to be a friend of Ray's in prison was released on parole. This was Charles Myers, and he said, Lamphere told him a human head was buried somewhere on the Gunnis farm and after his release, Myers spent several nights looking for the head, which he said Ray told him was that of a Chicago woman. And that at 3 a.m. the morning of the fires, Bell had gotten in a car and left for Chicago with a box full of money. Here's why I think this is worth considering. I mentioned what was left in Bell's estate, about $8,500, about 260000 today. If you do the math, of all her insurance schemes, the money from all the men, whatever other business dealings she had. She must have been worth a lot more than $8,500, right? So where was the rest of it? Where did the money go? It's not a crazy question. And so this one guy that, that Ray was in jail with, in prison with, he's saying that Ray told him that the head of the woman he used to... Uh, fake Belle being the one that died in the fire, they buried her head somewhere on the property. And if they could find that, you know, maybe they could definitely prove that Belle was still alive. A few months after this, Belle was spotted in Alberta, Canada. And then in 1913, she was in Hot Springs, Arkansas. In 1914, she was in Indianapolis with bleached blonde hair. Joseph Maxson was arrested in January of 1915. Maxson was the man who was able to escape from the burning house that night in 1908. It was speculated he was Bell's current live-in boyfriend at the time. Not much attention was drawn to him during the investigation or the trial, and for a while after it was over, he flew under the radar. But in 1915, he was arrested for beating his wife and threatening to kill his wife and children. A few days later, he was evaluated by doctors to determine whether his experiences at the Gunnis Farm 
affected his sanity. And remember Elizabeth Smith? She was the woman Ray was visiting the night of the fire. There was some drama when she died. It was 1916, the headline read, Gunna's Secrets Die with Negro Woman. In a moment of irony, Mrs. Smith's house caught on fire and she died from shock and burns. She was 75 years old and, quote, had been a notorious character for many years. And I'm just going to keep reading from the article. Quote, she left several thousand dollars in cash in a local bank, owned eight houses, and drew a pension of $24 a month because her husband was a soldier in the Civil War. When in her teens, Elizabeth Umstead was known as a colored beauty. White men were dazzled with her, and her association with a brilliant Laporte lawyer half a century ago was the sensation of Northern Indiana, the climax coming when the man gave her a note for $600 to educate their child, and then became converted at a revival in which he arose and confessed his misdeeds. For thus publicly drawing attention to their affair, the Negro girl horsewhipped the lawyer on the public square before a great crowd, the man finally breaking away and finding refuge in a nearby drugstore. When Ray Lamphere was arrested for setting fire to the Gunnis home, it became known that he spent the night at the home of the Smith woman, leaving at three o'clock in the morning. The woman was a witness for Lamphere in an effort to prove he did not leave her house until it was too late to have fired the place. This article conveniently left out the part where Ray later implicated her in the fire and she had to go to trial for it. As far as I know, she was acquitted. Then a day later, after she died, an article came out in the Indianapolis News speculating that Mrs. Smith was a voodoo doctor. She had no living relatives. The state took her property when she died, and when they went inside her house, it was reported they found a human skull between two mattresses. <laughs> Mrs. Smith had promised Ray's attorney that when she felt the end was near, she would reveal everything she knew about the Gunnis murders, but when her house caught fire, attorney Warden was away in Louisiana, and the two never got a chance to talk before she died. Now the big question was, is that Belle Gunnis' skull they just found in Mrs. Smith's house? A day later, another article came out. This time it called Mrs. Smith a fortune teller. And some man showed up at the police station demanding they hand over his skull. He said it was an ancient Native American skull and he gave it to her years ago and now he wanted it back. And that was the end of it. They, they realized quickly it was not Belle Gunnis' skull and you know, that whole story was put to bed, but it was a very exciting 48 hours. Now in 1923, a farmer named John Nepsha began laying a foundation for a new home on the ground where Bell's farmhouse stood. He said, quote, I'm not afraid of the dead ones. It's the living I watch. Four years later, the paper reported he did still own that property, but it sat quiet and vacant. On Halloween, 1923, Joseph Maxson was working at the Indiana Molding Company when a piece of timber fell on his head, killing him instantly. Over the years, women were arrested all over the region, accused of being the murderous Belle Gunnis, but it was always a case of mistaken identity. Police never found Belle Gunnis. 
Maybe because she was killed on April 28th in a fire. Or maybe because she was a criminal mastermind, always a step ahead, always with a plan. DNA testing has been done over the years to try to confirm body parts found in the fire belong to Belle, but no DNA evidence has ever been conclusive. It's also unclear exactly how many victims Belle murdered. Most estimates vary between 14 and 24 people, but some speculate it's more likely that number is much higher, like 40 or 50. It doesn't matter how many to say with confidence that Belle Gunness, Hell's Princess, was a calculated, ruthless, greedy monster. So I bet some of you are wondering, Jesse, so much death, is the farm haunted? And according to some neighbors, the answer is yes. One who lived close by said over the years he would hear screams at night and would see strange orbs behind his house. Another neighbor said her dog often barked at those strange balls of light. Officers have reported getting calls to the area for what would sound like domestic disturbances, but once they got there, the place would be empty. No explanation for the sounds. Now, I think this location is private property, so you can't just walk up and trespass on the farmland, but the LaPorte County Historical Society Museum has a permanent exhibit on Bell Gunness. So if you're ever in the area, that's how you can get up close and personal. If you've ever spotted Bell Gunness out and about, Send me an email. Let me know. kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to another episode. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a review. Leave a rating. Tell your friends. And that's all I've got. Take care. Happy Halloween. Until next time. <laughs>